This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And joining us again, our contributing writer, what's your title, Chris? Chris Rosen's back with us. It's a contributing writer. Hello. Yeah, How hey, I got it right. So we are in the thick of August, where normally we would be waiting for all the festival season to kick off. In some ways, we are. Uh, festival season is coming uh, in one form or another. Um, but it's also Emmy season. The Emmy voting window begins this week. We've been doing interviews for many months now at this point with a lot of the contenders, and we'll have two more this week. Uh, Richard talked to Linda Cardellini, who is nominated for Dead to Me, and Chris talked to Yaya Abdul-Mateen, who was on Watchmen in a role. Uh, he plays Cal, but his role contains other elements. Maybe we'll get into a spoilery conversation about that uh, before we hear Chris's interview. So we figured it'd be a good time to talk about some of these Emmy categories um, as voting begins, kind of getting the lay of the land. Uh, as with everything, it feels a little bit quieter chatter-wise than it might normally be. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm getting a lot of emails from various like people with Emmy contenders being like, walk through our digital FYC space or like, here is some money from Grubhub to watch while you watch our show. Like there's there's interesting creative ways for these contenders to try to get attention. Um but like with everything else, it's just it's kind of strange and quiet. Does, does it seem like that way to you guys, too? Yeah, I mean, I think that like this being the first test case for like an awards season campaign, you know, in the new reality, mm -hmm. uh, there are going to be some bumps. But like, I mean, I think what I'm heartened by and it's maybe a kind of naive way to be heartened is that. Well, I mean, everyone is assuming that things are just going to happen, you know, <laughs> like there will be an <laughs> Emmys there will in be some enemies. form. Yeah. yeah um, you know, I guess that's kind of how we've had to soldier on with a lot of things. But yeah, those those kind of interactive experiences, there's one for Mrs. Maisel, I know. I haven't actually experienced any of them, but I'm just, I am kind of curious about how, what effect, if any, those have. One thing's for sure, people have a lot of time to watch stuff. And I don't know how Emmy voters are feeling. I'm not necessarily every night wanting to watch the most recent and relevant things. I find myself kind of going into weird, you know, rabbit holes of like gross out comedies from the 2010s or whatever. But at least there's <laughs> content to watch at this point. I mean, the really weird thing is if they don't find a way to kind of open up sets pretty soon, like next year could be really weird where there's no there's nothing to give awards to. 
Yeah, that's like the worst case scenario. I think that um, you know the Oscars might be dealing with at some point because movies can't find a way to be released. But television has been such a relief for these last few months of like having new things you can watch. And there's still, you know, the Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant HBO show is still coming. Lovecraft Country is airing right now. Like there is still big things to watch on TV. But, you know, maybe we get to December and that starts running out and things start getting really scary. Um, Mike, what you were saying about people having time to watch things, I've heard that a couple times as maybe a reason that this year's Emmys will be more thoughtfully voted on or more interesting. Like, I think the people who write about television and watch it professionally are eternally wishing the Emmys would um, expand their purview a little bit more. And last year, we kind of saw that happen where the big critical darling Fleabag was the one that actually won all the Emmys. Um, So then when you poke around at Gold Derby, our friends there who um, make their predictions about who will win things, in the comedy and drama categories, there's almost this universal agreement that Schitt's Creek will win in comedy and Succession will win in drama, both of which would be first-time winners. And if you've been watching the Emmys a long time and you watched, you know, Monk win five years in a row, that might feel overly optimistic that they would embrace these new shows. But uh, I don't know. Do you guys feel like this is the year for something a little bit fresh? I mean, Sits Creek is off the air, but it would be a first time winner. Yeah, I feel like in both of those cases, I think the industry has been at least aspects of the industry have seemed like kind of champing at the bit to reward both of those shows, like because they were such zeitgeisty hits in their own way. They They were really you know, as much as anything can be like organic hits. And I think that mm-hmm. um, the industry will want to reward that. Like, look, we're still making quality. I mean, even though Shit's Creek is Canadian, like we're still making quality things that can find a really rabid fan base in the traditional way. Isn't that exciting? Look how adaptive we are. And I think also for both Shits and Succession, you know, Shits is, especially in its latter seasons, got very kind of heartwarming and there was a lot of sentiment in it um, in addition to the kind of you know oddball uh, comedy and so that has felt that felt at least like in the winter like pretty comforting where succession serves another sort of interest which is like look at the oligarchy ruining the world like aren't they bad and and all that stuff so I, I feel like a, like two different reactions to the current moment are served by both of those shows mm-hmm Chris, I think you love the succession at least as much as I do. Um, do you do you feel optimistic for it this time around? I do, especially because last year it felt like I mean, the problem I have with the Emmys is just the way they do the eligibility window. When you end up, when the show airs, it's like last year when the Emmys were airing, it was in the middle of Succession's amazing second season, right? And it was like you're watching the Emmys and some of the people were like, there were some nominations for the show, but not nearly as much as there were this year. And then you're just like, why is Succession not winning anything? Like, this is so yeah. stupid. What are we watching here? And similar, like, <laughs> so I feel like this that is like kind of like the Emmys would be like, playing catch up here to reward succession for a second season that aired during last year's Emmys. You know, it's kind of like the calendar just kind of screws it up. And the other thing, you know, just to piggyback off what Richard was saying about Shit's Creek, we we just watched the whole show, my wife and I here. Uh, and I found the thing I noted watching it all in a row is that it actually kept getting better. And I think the final season actually was its best season, which you don't necessarily see all the time on shows, like when they're coming to the end. And I think... Not that the best thing usually wins, but if Shit's Creek is able to win, it would be like, oh, you know what? That actually is deserved because I think this last season really was its best. So it's like it's, they're able to reward a show then not just as like a, hey, great, we all like this show that was really zeitgeisty, but also like the quality of the episodes are even better in the last season. So it would be like weird if the Emmys did do the right thing for these shows. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's a weird year. Maybe maybe it'll happen. I know I'm diseased in the head. 
but um, I got I fell out of love with Schitt's Creek as its center got gooier and gooier. Like I really I kind of enjoyed it at the beginning, discovering it when no one seemed to know what it was as like a weird Chris Elliott, you know, waiting for Guffman crowd like absurdist comedy. But it's amazing how that show went from total underdog, nothing, what is pop TV? I still don't know what pop TV is, to giant like Netflix juggernaut that is that is clearly going to do extremely well at the Emmys this year. I mean, it is it's an amazing story and I think it is the kind of story, you know, that Hollywood likes to tell about itself. That's something that's really high quality um, can break through and be successful. And then I think that, you know, it, it, it was canny the way that they shifted from absurdist, nihilistic comedy to uh, making fun of like rich people and poor people to like a show about, you know, loving one another and being accepting. And so, I mean, that that's another story that that Hollywood likes to tell. And I can console myself with the fact that Succession is still just as viciously nihilistic as it ever was and probably always will be. <laughs> yeah, that can never change. Uh, well, I think the thing I liked about the final season of Shit's Creek is I feel like it started out, like Mike was saying, with that very much jokey nihilism. The middle, like season four and five, really kind of amped up the sentiment and a lot of the, uh, you know, the really touching moments. But I think the last season struck a good balance between the two different versions of the show. So I do feel like it was like, I found a lot of the jokes in the last season, very sharp and funny and barbed. And then also the sentiment that was there was strong too. So that's true. I don't know. Not not that we need to stump for this underdog show shit's Creek, but I mean like, you know, (laughs) pretty funny uh, at times. So that's good. It is wild when you look at the history of the best comedy uh, series Emmy, like it was either networks or HBO winning it forever. Uh, basically until two years ago when um, Marvelous Justin Maisel won and then Fleabag won. So the idea of pop TV, which is like a network, I I have cable and I don't know if I have pop TV. Like I know I I know people have seen the final season of Shit's Creek, but probably not nearly as many as have seen the seasons that are already on Netflix. Like it would be a very odd duck kind of win, but maybe appropriate for for where we are in the television landscape right now. Well, especially because it's really would be an award for the CBC, you know, um, who created the show and aired the show in Canada and pop TV kind of just like, you know, just decided to, you know, they they bought it to air it in the United States. Um, But also you could look at it that it's really a win for Netflix because it wasn't until Schitt's Creek got on Netflix that the show really took off. And to the extent that I wrote something about like my late in in arrival at as a shit. Creek fan, and I credited Netflix, and the head of the CBC gave an interview shortly thereafter saying she was crushed that a Vanity Fair piece credited <laughs> Netflix for the show. Uh, so, whoops. Um, You're to, never invited back to yeah. Canada. I'm sorry. Yeah. She's yeah. going to give another interview saying, and I'm crushed they still think it's a pop TV show. <laughs> like, what's right. wrong with Vanity Fair people? <laughs> hey, by the way, I said I fell out of love with it. I also paid like $40 to download the whole final season on Amazon. So, I mean, you know. You spoke with your wallet there. Yeah. Another little interesting kind of connection between those shows which wouldn't seem to relate to one another in in many ways is that both of them are about business um something that i found really family interesting business. yeah exactly family business in particular something that like as as schitt's creek you know evolved over the seasons it became a show about small scale industry you know uh, opening stores and running little motels and all that and and where a succession is about the way other end of that kind of thing of that enterprising spirit i guess and maybe there is something even in succession oddly comforting about like the north american capitalist machine churning on despite you know dark times that like 
will even subconsciously speak to people. You know, these are shows that address things that are going catastrophically wrong, either for the Roy family or for the characters in Schitt's Creek. Like, and yet they they find ways to maneuver and survive and adapt. And I don't know, maybe there's some spirit there that people will connect to. I also think there is an incredible Revenge of the Nerd uh, subtext to Schitt's Creek that I love because I, I just recently went back and watched um, Best in Show for like the 750th time. But Eugene Levy in particular, his character is so brutalized by the filmmakers. Like he's such an epic nerd. He literally has the two left feet. Do you remember that? Like his, <laughs> his, left, his right foot is also a left foot. He can't even walk in a straight line. And so for him and his son to kind of give him this late career reinvention as the suave, tailored, you know, you know, like a little bit, a little bit geeky in a dad way, but actually like pretty well dressed, pretty sort of together, rich guy. I do think that that's that's really fun, and and it's cool to see a different side of Eugene Levy after all the years where he had to play the sort of like mega dork in all of the Christopher Guest stuff. <laughs> well, Mike, you're probably too polite to make this um, sorted point, but in Eugene Levy in Best in Show is kind of the ultimate cuck. <laughs> Right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> with all the jokes about Catherine uh, O'Hara's character constantly meeting men that she's been with in the past. Um, well, so yeah, this is quite a reversal. Well, yeah, and the love the love match that they have in Schitt's Creek is really is really great, right? For all of the craziness, you know that he's just head over heels uh for her and and she's like loyal to him. So there is a kind of wonderful redemption thing for for both of them in that in that characterization. Well, yeah, and bringing up Catherine O'Hara the way that the consensus has emerged around her, I think, is really interesting because it's not like anyone, I think, before Shits Creek got all these nominations, was like, well, Catherine O'Hara, like Emmy's powerhouse, I believe this would be her first Emmy win. But, there, you know, when you look at the lineup and there's some amazingly talented actresses in there, including Rachel Brosnahan, who's won several times, uh, and including Linda Cardellini, who um, Richard will be talking to later. But when you see the opportunity to give Catherine O'Hara an Emmy, I think everyone it, with their similar love for Shits Creek is like, yeah, this it's time. Yeah, and I think the sad thing is that she won't very likely get the public moment to have that win. It'll be something digital, I would assume, at this point. Um, I wonder if they'll do the Zoom applause like they're doing at the DNC this week. Um, I don't know how many of you guys watched the first night of the DNC as we record this, but uh, kind of the awkwardly timed Zoom applause from all these people in their living rooms around the country. (laughs) I I somehow saw a clip of baseball, and they're actually doing that for baseball, too. Um, (laughs) It's weird. Although I I have been over the past, oh God, two weeks now, I've been painstakingly recording about 3,000 different clapping sounds to give Mm -hmm. to the Emmys to kind of layer together they'll just so, have yeah. a bunch of your like girl what like mario kart avatar in the audience <laughs> right. exactly um i need to correct myself Catherine o'hara won an emmy for writing sctv in 1982 uh oh which is God. a so, like 10 years ago it's crazy yeah i know <laughs> it's amazing how much has happened since then so anyway that would be a uh, fantastic bookend to to that first emmy um, well, over in the limited series category, which, uh, you know, when the Emmy nominations came out, Watchmen was the big uh, headline because it got the most nominations of any series. Uh, it's in the limited series category. I, I think for many of those categories, despite the incredible talent at hand, like Mrs. America is in there, Unorthodox is in there, um, you know, Hugh Jackman and Bad Education is in there in the acting series. The question for me is kind of just like how many Watchmen will win. And really the only thing standing in its way in some of these cases is that some of the actors are nominated against each other. Um, you guys see it sweeping the same way that I do? 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that, you know, obviously some choices are going to have to be made. You know, I think that like in featured actor, you know, the choice between a, a really exciting newcomer and like an old veteran Oscar winner, like, I don't know how that's going to play out. I kind of tend to think they'll go for the old veteran and Louis Gossett Jr. But, um, you know, I think also like the Watchmen question is one like kind of what you brought up, Mike, is like, I would assume that a lot of people who didn't catch it in its first wave have caught up with it now. And seeing how it demands to be sort of reckoned with the current age, like, just as Lovecraft Country is airing and sort of doing the same thing in a different form. Like, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of Watchmen's nominations are theirs to lose. I mean, except when they're against each other. Um, that category you're talking about, there's three Watchmen actors, Yaya Abdul-Mateen, um, who, Chris, you talked to, Louis Gossett Jr., and also uh, Jovan Adepo. That's really tough. And there are there are two actors from Hollywood, so uh, they're competing against each other. And then you have Titus Burgess uh, for Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is funny because he has been in the comedy category forever. Um, anyway, how would you guys make this choice? Hmm. Well, it's tricky. I mean, I guess if I was going to trying to assess, like, who from Watchmen should win, let's say... I guess you'd ultimately have to say, like, whose character made the biggest impact in the series. So you have one character, two actors playing one character. Which is wild. Uh, yeah. And then you have Yaha's uh, character, too. So I-, I feel like I would go with him because, like, ultimately, he sort of helps wrap up the themes of the series. But but I don't know. Then again, Gossett Jr.'s right there. He's an old guy. Like, it would be kind of a nice feather in his cap later in his career. So maybe ultimately sentiment like in Schitt's Creek would win out and I would vote for him. No. I would just ask Richard and Chris who they were voting for and do and do that. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of agree with Richard. I think uh, Luga, I mean, like, the sentiment is definitely with Lugasid. Having talked to Yaya, I actually think... His performance. Can we spoil this? I mean, like the show's on forever. Yeah. We la- so he. I plays, think you're going to spoil it in your interview. I too, do. So. I do. <laughs> so, like, spoiler alert here. But he plays Doc. He ends up playing Doctor Manhattan in the, in the show, and he then he, so he has to transform throughout, and he's playing like about three or four different characters basically by the end. I think it's a great performance, and like he really is doing some incredible nuanced acting. Whereas Luke Gossett is kind of doing Luke Gossett. Like I think, and not no offense to that, it's, it's very good. Um, but I think Yaya is a really incredible performance, and like kind of like is the linchpin of the whole show, especially as it goes towards the end. Select him, but I mean, like everybody cancels each other out. Titus Burgess, get ready with that Zoom uh, acceptance speech. Can't wait for for Kimmy Schmidt. He had a couple of good jokes, uh, you know, really good. So. I think you know he should be ready. I this was, I, I had this theory about Succession too. Uh, when you know in the drama actor category where Jeremy Strong and Brian Cox are up against each other, and like I you know would love for both of them to win, but I'm kind of convinced they will cancel each other out, and Jason Bateman will win. That that happens a lot in situations like this. Dad's nomination's better. <laughs> That's my <laughs> Jeremy Strong. That's a really good Kendall Roy. The other thing with the two of them, I think, is like. They're definitely lead performances, but I think you could definitely imagine a world where they're category frauded as supporting, whereas mm-hmm. Jason Bateman is the like the very much the lead of Ozark, right? So it's like I could see a world where uh, they do cancel each other out, and he does win. <laughs> and Bateman is not just the lead, but he's one of the creative engines behind the show. You know, yeah. Um, and it's a show that you know the Emmys seem to really like and. That's very popular, you know, depending on how much we trust Netflix's, you know, provided data, you know, and, and it's it's a populist show that I th- that I think is 
less, you know, addressing controversy, let's say. So I feel like he's a safer pick in some senses. But I don't know. I I would hope that given everything happening around this ceremony uh, in the world, that um, the Emmy voters would pick this thing that kind of more pertinently addresses the world. Um, Whereas Ozark is a great, solid, you know, crime show, but it's not really turning over any stones and, 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 you know, unearthing new things. The other thing about Bateman is he's probably worked with every single Emmy voter at least twice, right? In the past, like, 50 years. Like, the guy, and, and yeah, anyway, I don't know. Then again, Brian Cox sure worked with a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, well, and Jason Bateman won for writing or directing, directing. last year. Yeah. Uh, we right. all remember the gif of him, like, reacting kind of in stunned silence to him winning and Laura Linney, like, leaning over to slap him on the back, um, which just makes me want Laura Linney to win an Emmy. But, you know, that's a, yeah. that's a permanent I mean, state. Bateman sort of has, like, the TV's Ron Howard narrative, you know? Like, yes. kid actor who endured and still actually, unlike Ron Howard, still acts, but now is, like, building himself a nice portfolio of directing which I don't know, that's probably a narrative that some people within the Academy are going to glom onto pretty, pretty closely. He's played so many roles that he's literally played a role with my name. Really? I'm, I'm pretty sure he was Michael Hogan on the Hogan family. Wow. Anyway, yeah. That's was how that many a... roles that guy's played. <laughs> probably played we... a Chris Rosen. I sure. I know he I know you've interviewed him before my or I think you interviewed him I know he's been on the show before I mean we need to have you guys back together to talk about the battle of the Michael Hogan I, I have never interviewed him it's, it's oh, too it's it like was... the singularity it would be like <laughs> I feel like I was in Tenet <laughs> oh Tenet what a sore subject to bring up um, all right well this isn't the last we're going to talk about the Emmys um, but I think we're going to pivot away real quick before we uh, listen to the interviews that uh, Chris and Richard did um, Richard there's a movie opening in theaters this weekend and that terrifies me uh, alone um, is it is the movie any good and worth anyone risking their lives for well, not only is it opening in theaters, as some other movies have this summer, just in drive-ins, but also been available you know, for digital rental. Um, but Unhinged, the new thriller with Russell Crowe, is only in theaters. It is not going on VOD. The you know sort of screener letter that arrived with the link while urging you to watch it on as big a screen as possible. There were some press screenings uh, abroad, not in the United States, uh, in actual theaters. But that letter strenuously says this is not a VOD release. It is only being released in theaters. There is a point of pride. And it's one that Soul the kind of new company that's releasing the film, touted all the way back when it was going to come out in early July, back when people thought Tenet was going to be the first big movie, and then Unhinged snuck in there and said, no, we're actually going to be first. So they've really stuck to this kind of defining character trait of we're the first movie back, which is, you know, the morality of that to me is a bit fuzzy, um, honestly. And then the movie itself is this really dark, really violent thing about a young woman and her son who are terrorized uh, in an, a road rage gone really, really badly kind of thing, um, where Russell Crowe is just this kind of, uh, you know, unloosed male anger at the world. And it's really a brutal, brutal movie. And it's a very strange thing to have like, hey, welcome back to theaters. Now sit through <laughs> this whole thing about how how murderous and angry uh, American men are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you want to watch like In the Heights or something a little cheerful if you're going to like risk your life to go into a theater. Or, or, or Tenet, which feels, you know, yeah. which I would imagine is going to feel pretty cinematic. And this does have its, you know, chase scenes and moments like that. But like, th- this is a movie that really, you know, would not be, lo- you know, lose. I mean, people, a lot. A lot of people have pretty big TVs or bigger TVs than most people used to anyway. I watched it on my living room television. You know, I didn't feel like I was losing any of the grandeur. Um, So, yeah, it's a weird kind of small release to be the first big release post. I mean, amidst COVID. 
Does it make you wonder if, like, if you did get to see Tenet on a big screen or whenever you get to see something on the big screen, if, like, your eyes won't be able to handle it? Like, it can be, like, like <laughs> seeing the broader world for the first time, like, your brain will melt down? Well, I've been walking regularly down to the Brooklyn Heights promenade to look at the city, which in its vastness, and I feel like that's, like, yeah. re- retraining my eyes to, uh, <laughs> to, to take in something big. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how any of you guys feel. I mean, wh- wh- where do you come down on, like, is it, like right of this movie to be doing this and to be not only doing it, but touting it so heavily? I mean, I guess people want credit for trying to help movie theaters stay afloat, which is not a small thing. Like, they are they are going to struggle, I think, for a long time. And you can imagine that there are places where it is safer than other. I think New York City might even be a safe place to go to the movies or safer than, you know, places where the pandemic is going on more. Um, but especially as, like, schools are kind of trying and failing to reopen themselves, it, it kind of feels like repeating the same pattern. Like, schools were like, we're going to bring students back in person, and then two weeks later have to send everybody home. It feels like movie theaters are going to do the same thing. And, and Unhinged might be the, the movie that kicks that off. It just seems like until numbers in most places are a lot lower than they are, uh, you know, getting all gung-ho about reopening movie theaters just doesn't seem like a great priority and seems like it's probably a risky thing to do. Um, and I totally understand the desire to to be supportive of the industry, and I think everyone wants to do that, but it, it feels like this is an industry that can have at-home models, you know, like like us. They, you, you can. I mean, with except that the people selling popcorn and the ushers and all that, and I get it. It's really hard. So I don't know. It's complicated, but it feels like yeah. Let's maybe get the pandemic down, try and make schools safe, and then start thinking about movies. But you know, I guess there's different ways of looking at it. Yeah, I just feel like it's going to be this weird whiplash almost where some people, you know, feel, you know, those who feel like it's safe enough to do so are going to, you know, go back to the movie theater, see this thing. And then, uh, you know, or like all these people are horribly murdered and then be like, huh, all right, well, back home, I guess. Like, you know, it's just not it's it's not uh, it's not a a feel good movie. It's not even a really energizing movie in any um, positive way. So it's like it's it's a weird sour note to kind of be starting this whole thing up again. Well, in theory, in two weeks, Tenet's opening, right? Like that that September 3rd date is still on the books. Yeah, and those damn foreigners are going to see well, it before yeah. us. Well, yeah, next week we're going to um, we're going to talk to Ben Kroll, who is in Paris and who's going to go see it. And it's going to I wonder if Tenet's just like an unspoilable movie entirely because none of us even know what it's about. But uh, he'll tell us all about it. So we'll get to feel jealous of him. Well, why don't we just fly to Europe and watch it? Oh, that's not right. Allowed. We're not allowed to leave the country. <laughs> yeah, even if Richard wasn't banned from Canada by the CBC, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he wouldn't be allowed to go there anyway. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. All right, well, let's listen to uh, the interviews that we have this week. Uh, first up, let's hear from uh, Richard. You talked to Linda Cardellini about Dead to Me. Uh, you've been a fan of that show, I think, before a lot of people caught on to it, before it kind of got all these big Emmy nominations. So what did you guys talk about? 
Um, yeah, we just kind of talked about how the show, in some senses, feels like a sleeper hit. You know, it, it wasn't the most touted new release on Netflix in May of 2019 when it when the first season premiered, but it gained you know a steady build of attention. Christina Applegate, Carlini's co-star, got nominated for an Emmy last year. They're both nominated this year, and as Carlini says in the interview, most excitingly, the show is nominated for best comedy. So she feels like that's a real recognition of team effort. Part of that team is James Marsden, who I wrote kind of a mini profile of on VF.com this summer that you can read now um so yeah it's just this kind of you know chugging along little engine comedy mixing with drama and even though it has a low profile uh i think that it presents a really demanding acting challenge to its leads um and cardellini you know is certainly i think in some senses gets the bulk of that and so yeah we talked about kind of the challenges of that and and the the thrills of doing that um and it's just exciting to talk to an actor who you know has been doing it for a long time you know she broke out in 1998 in Freaks and Geeks and um, has been plugging away since and everything is varied as Marvel movies and small horror movies and now this. So, um, yeah, it was just a nice conversation with like a real like working actor who seems to really still love what she does. Well, let's listen to your conversation with Linda Cardellini. Well, I now have the distinct pleasure of being on the line with one of the stars of the great Netflix. I kind of want to call it a sleeper hit. I don't know if that's what that what that really means anymore these days. But um, (laughs) uh, Linda Cardellini, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, I say sleeper hit because I feel like some, you know, Netflix shows arrive with a lot of fanfare and then some kind of sneak their way in and find their audience in a gradual sense. I'm curious, is that is that kind of how you experience the Dead to Me phenomenon now that it's Emmy nominated all you know for all these awards, including your, yourself? Congratulations. Thank you. Um, it's a funny business because you never it never comes all at once. You know, it, it's not like live theater where you, you feel the energy of it and the performance and people clap. And, you know, it's, it's not that kind of medium. So, you know, when we shoot something, it's a year before, and then it finally comes out. And then when whatever happens with it, it it never seems to feel like it's in real time. So this show, though, it seemed to, um, I guess maybe because of the bangs, I seem to get recognized (laughs) very immediately after it, it came out as Judy on the street. I do think that Netflix is funny because like a week on next on Netflix is like an eternity somewhere else. I think people, when they do watch something on Netflix, they they can binge it whole in a very short amount of time, which I think has changed, you know, over my years of being in the industry and seeing how things have, have hit or not. I think it, it changes the immediacy of how, or how quickly people digest it is, is really apparent in the Netflix model. Yeah, well, it's an interesting kind of dual thing because it, it, it is quickly digested, but also people, you know, can discover something months later after release. It's not like, you know, being on ER and every, you know, it's every Thursday night, people yeah. sit down. Um, so I would imagine in some senses, like, it's kind of like almost having a book out. People can discover it at any given time. And and uh, so it's kind of a long wave. Yeah, I noticed that with Freaks and Geeks, because when, you know, Freaks and Geeks for a while was, you know, of course, got canceled. Nobody, nobody really saw it back when it was on. But when it came on to Netflix, I noticed that, people had really started to see it. People who were, you know, a generation separated from when it came out. And it was very obvious once it came out on on Netflix that it had sort of this life again. And so I think that is sort of the power of the streaming model and especially Netflix. Yeah, as, a, as an owner of a, a proud owner of a Freaks and Geeks uh, DVD box set, uh, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that that younger people are, are, are watching it as well. Yeah, so 
somebody said to me right after it was on Netflix, hey, I hope you guys get a second season. Oh. Thought, That's a hilarious joke or an incredible compliment or both. Yeah. I don't know what. Well, it's so weird because I feel like young people kind of just experience it very immediately and they don't really think about the context of when it was on. I have a friend who's a school teacher and she overheard some of her, you know, teenage students talking about the show Roswell, but from, you know, the WB back in the late oh, 90s. Yeah. And she asked them, are you talking about Roswell? And they said, how do you know that show? And she said, it was made for me. <laughs> I was a teenager then. Um, but they don't really think about it that way, which is no, kind of, kind of cool, actually. Roswell, just like sort of across the street from us, we used to, we used to, that was around the same time as Freaks and Geeks. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, it was a heady, heady time for television then. It is now. Um, and I would think that being such a, a, a kind of lauded series, it must feel pretty exciting in that sense, but also just the acting you get to do. I can't think of another show, at least that I've been watching lately, that mixes comedy and really intense drama sometimes at the turn of a scene, you know, Um, is that something that that, was that one of the the major attractors to you when the project kind of came across your desk? Yes. Although reading it for the first time, you know, when you're just reading something on paper, you're not exactly sure what the tone will be because you, it can go several different ways. It can go extraordinarily broad. It can go, you know, reading that first script and after meeting Liz and realizing what she wanted. It was very exciting because I felt like it hadn't been that kind of story hadn't been told in that specific way. And the idea that not only do you have the comedy and the drama and the trauma of everything, you have this suspense and you have these plot twists that are these, these little surprises along the way. I thought that was really fun. And I thought, I thought it made it highly bingeable. I thought it worked well in sort of the streaming model. Um, but I just thought, you know, more than anything, it, it's about reading the script and loving the role. And the role was just, Judy's just an incredibly complex person. And the the idea to be able to play comedy and drama, both within the same, almost in the same breath at times, was really appealing to me because it wasn't something I had been doing at that time. And it was, I was looking to do something different than the last thing that I had done. Yeah, I mean, I think that mix of it is so beguiling. And, 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 and it gets at really the heart of what the show, I think, is sort of you know, thematically about, you know, it's about these two women who um, have had, I guess, maybe it could be characterized as bad experiences in the world of men or with men, um, who find, despite these deep secrets that they're holding, a real bond. Um, And yet, you could argue that it's all predicated on lies. And so how real is it? How do you think of it when you're when you and Christina are doing these scenes? I mean, do you think that is it entirely real for Judy or is it self-preservation? It is. No, I, I think, I think it's easy to look at it as, as sort of selfishly motivated that that's the easy way to look at it or to play her. But I think in her mind, it's all done in earnest. And that's sort of what makes her so much fun to follow because no matter what she does, there's a justification for it. Because like, Oh, that's just Judy. She does that in her mind, that logic works. And for me as an actress, that's really fun to find this illogical, all these illogical things that she does to find her own logic for them. Because most of the time when people are, are behaving, there's a method to their madness. And I wouldn't call Judy mad, but I think she does a lot of things that, that, that most people would not do. And it's, it's, it's fun for me to make that seem completely natural to a human being when it, when it seems like the last thing in the world that you should do, especially befriending uh, Jen. And then for them to be, I mean, I think they're very unlikely friends yet at the same time, I think they're sort of the flip side of the same coin. And I think that there are things that she admires about Jen that she can never do. And Jen does the same with Judy. And I think that they are just, 
they become just so intertwined that they really can't exist without each other at a certain point, which for Judy, she's codependent. So that's something that short of she's, she's managed to do without, you know, do with in her, in her life. But in meeting Jen, there's just this, there's a truth to it, even though it is sort of based on untruths, there is a truth to the friendship and the, um, the way that they rely on each other and they really need each other. And then they get to a point, especially in the second season, where there is no one who knows them as well as they know each other. And, uh, and that's something that's really powerful when you have a lot of secrets to have somebody who truly knows you and even still accepts you and loves you. I think it's an interesting destination that they get to in their friendship. Yeah, and I think an interesting thing, I mean, you, you brought up, you know, Judy's kind of uh, very quirky sense of logic, let's say. And I, I think you could also look at that logic as a sort of moral compass, you know, because I think a lot of times Judy is trying to do right by someone. And and oftentimes in doing so, she fucks everything else up, you know. and Absolutely. And I think that, I don't know, there's something in there about uh, her kind of guilelessness that um, it feels familiar, I think, to a lot of people who are trying to navigate their way through a very tricky and morally compromised uh, America right now. And yet I think I like that you don't play her too bumbling. How do you find ways to kind of locate Judy's like dignity, even though she's kind of flailing a lot of the time? She's different than I am in the fact that she's always present with where she is and who she's with. Um, I tend to overthink things more, but Judy sort of just goes with whoever is in the room and next to her. And her, and her main objective is in, in that is, is to be somebody for that person. She really wants to be somebody to someone and it hasn't ever really happened for her. You know, you meet her mom in the second season and you realize she was never really loved and she was often manipulated and she carries this shame and this guilt for having told the truth. And, you know, and, and all of these things that sort of, end up reverberating throughout her life. I think that, I think when, when Judy is with somebody, and even when she's with Perez in, in season two, which that relationship I just, I love because it's so fraught with problems for her, but yet she still tries to reach out to somebody who literally is after her. But you know, when she's, when she talks about her mother to Perez, that in that moment, even though it is an untruth is true to her at that moment. And it connects her to Perez. And it's not self-serving. It's actually just trying to make somebody else feel better. That's how I play it. What the audience can see it as self-serving, but I think Judy is always trying to be selfless and trying to capture someone's heart. She really just wants to be loved. Yeah. Yeah. There's a sort of, um, a kind of puppy dog quality, you know, she's always kind of scratching at the door <laughs> asking yeah. for someone to open it. And, and then um, when someone opens it and pets her and treats her well, she, she doesn't know how to accept it. And she often moves on to the person who's more toxic. Right. Right. Which is a pattern. I think a lot of people who've been, you know, out in the world dating or whatever have, have, uh, you know, done in their own, in their own lives. Yeah. Um, there's something about, about people at times who, who try to get the person who's most difficult to have love them, love them. And, and if you are having problems with yourself and how you feel about yourself, that can make you feel good. If you can get somebody who you think would never love you in the first place to love you. And I think Judy feels that way about herself. I mean, she's got a lot of, she's got a lot of guilt and shame and, and self-loathing that she takes out only on herself. 
Yeah, and 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 you know, uh, in addition to all of this kind of internal stuff and and this you know this deep character motivation, you also have the immediate stuff of the suspense of these two. That's the fun part because you're always yeah. battling with that. Yeah. Yeah, like that the, they have to you know really address something urgent. You know, in yeah. every episode, it feels like or so, several things urgent. Um, I, I'm curious because I mean, not not being an actor, I, I always wonder this. Like, I don't know what kind of sequence you're filming in, but like, I assume it's episode to episode at least. How do you maintain the kind of cumulative build of the season when you've had a night to sleep on a scene or, you know, you're coming back after the weekend and you have to be you you did last episode at a level eight and now you have to be at level nine? Is that really hard to calibrate? Sometimes it's more difficult than others. And sometimes we'll be working on two episodes at once, you know, and sometimes you're doing the hardest scene of the day and then you're doing the funniest scene of the day right you know back to back but the great news is i have an incredible partner in christina and and even further another partner in liz feldman and her vision for the show is is so strong and we're all on the same page and we really collaborate it is truly a team effort so when you know you can you can look at anybody at any given time and say okay we're here right you can talk it out and you can get right back to that spot and we're all there supporting each other and informing each other, you know, because it does bounce around a lot. So, you know, you sort of, sort of, if, if you're having a hard time sort of remembering where that arc is, you, we have so many people to help inform us and our relationships inform us. And more often than not, we're operating at around an 11. So, you know, in terms okay. of the high stakes and the drama, which is the fun part. And it's, you know, the idea that there's comedy within that is incredible to me and it makes it you know somebody once put it this way and i thought it was an interesting way to say it but it makes it sort of athletic at times so we really get to stretch muscles you know like and 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 go from one thing to the next and you know one minute we're we're doing something that is so heavy and the next minute you know we're screaming because there's you know rats coming out from underneath where the body's buried and then i mean you know and judy yells out don't hurt them you know right. so it, it's um it, it's always the opposites are always playing and we're and we're bouncing back and forth. Yeah, I think when I reviewed uh, the second season, I, I said that what you and, and Christina are doing is kind of deceptively some of the hardest, you know, work on TV right now because you are you have to keep that pitch going. So, um, do you just kind of come home exhausted from? Yeah, someday. Uh, yeah, sure. yeah. That, that, that garage scene in the second season is a killer that sort of wrenched our guts, and that's okay. You know, that's the that's the beautiful thing about the idea that we get to play something that is funny that day. And then by the end of the night, you know, we've spent six hours in that garage sort of leaning on each other and slobbering and crying and confessing. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's an incredible scene. You know, I'm curious. I'm, I wanted to ask you about working with Christina. Um, it's such an intimate partnership on this show. Do you think that any of your rapport is at all kind of born out of like that you both started acting young and have been sort of in the public eye since I think you were both at least teenagers, right? Yeah, I mean, I started probably in my late teens. I looked, I looked younger. Christina started really early, but yeah, we've been doing it for a long time. I mean, decades. So I think that we do have that in common. And I also, I feel like you know, I think after a long time in the industry, you know what you like and what you don't like, and and there's an honesty between the two of us and a and an ease that was there immediately. And I feel like. I don't know. It seems like we should have known each other all along and didn't. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I think that I'm sure that you were both at some young Hollywood party or something at some point together. But yeah, it's really cool seeing, you know, like I said, a Freaks and Geeks fan. And I certainly, you know, had seen Christina in a bunch of things. Don't tell mom the babysitter said. So it's really cool seeing you guys um, not just working in something together, but in something that I think is really about two adults. You know, it feels yeah. like yeah. a new phase of both of your careers in a way, or at least this, you know, just different roles. And I've seen you, you two play. So it's it's um, it's it's really neat. And I don't know if I can if we can zoom out a little bit. I, I'm just kind of curious about you know your career and 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 where you find yourself now. I mean, you've had this is your second Netflix show, correct? After Bloodline, yeah. You know, you've done Marvel. You did a, a successful horror movie recently. Uh, you acted with Tom Hardy in a really crazy character piece, uh, uh, Capone. H- how are you finding the business for yourself and 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 your your interest in in kind of because it seems like you're doing a lot of different things right now. Yeah, I mean that was always my hope. It was always my hope and my plan. And, and I've been fortunate to get more opportunity, you know, as of late. And, and that to me is, is wonderful. I mean, I am so lucky that the projects I've been able to do and the people I've been able to work with, I, I hardly have had a bad experience. And so in, in, I'm, I just feel really grateful. You know, I'm, it's always a difficult business because it's never steady. And so that's always been something that you you know, sort of our, I don't know, you're, you're geared to sort of, you can be in this place of fear. And it's just been really nice that, that things have, have gotten even better for me as time has gone on. And I think, you know, this role, especially with this role, I mean, Judy is one of the greatest roles I've been given. And it, and I think it really allows me to do so many different things all, all in one character. And I'm just, I'm just happy to have that at my stage at this stage in my career. And I'm happy to share that with another woman on screen. And, and I'm happy to be in a production where our showrunner is this wonderful woman and these producers. I just think that it's, um, I'm really excited about where things have, have gone for me, you know, and, and I've zigged and I've zagged and it's been several decades and, and I've always just sort of looked for the, for the material that sparked my interest, whether it was something that, I had never done before or working with people who I admire. I mean, you know, uh, or, or just great artists. And I, I feel really, I feel very fortunate lately. Well, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting thinking about Freaks and Geeks, which I, I kind of pinpoint as one of those shows that, arrived kind of as the you know the new golden age of tv was beginning and you know the sopranos was premiering and all that stuff and now to see you know 20 something years later that you're sort of reaping those benefits and still doing interesting things like i mean it's a real you've written a really interesting narrative in the industry over these years and you know it's cool that it's still paying off you know <laughs> thank you well yeah. i hope you know that i try not to look at my career as just one Thing. I try to look at it as yeah. a longer list of things. And hopefully if people care to look at that, that list of things that there, it shows sort of an interesting variety. And to me, that was the exciting thing about being an actor was the variety that you could, you could sort of have, you know, I only get to live one life as a, as a human being, but I could live lots of different kinds sure. <laughs> as, as an actor. Well, just a couple of years ago, you had a major role in a movie, a little movie that could that ended up winning Best Picture at the Oscars, yeah. uh, which was kind of crazy. I mean, it, it was Green Book something. I mean, I, 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 from every, every interview I've read with anyone involved in that, they didn't really see it having that trajectory. Did you, Was that the case for you? No, no, I yeah. had no. I mean, I don't think you can ever predict, though. I think I think 
in, you know, I think you can predict based on people, whether they can do good work or bad work. I think you can, you can maybe understand people's artistry by looking at, at the past, but I don't, I don't know that, I don't know you could ever predict that any project will be a great success. I think, you know, there are so many things that have to come into play for anything to sort of get made. And then once it is made for it, it goes into so many different hands. And especially being an actor, you, you don't know, you're not part of the end result. You're part of the day to day, but you're not part of who creates the end result. But, you know, Mahershala is such a phenomenal actor and Vigo and, and Peter was so gracious to me. I auditioned. He was so gracious to me. And Octavia is fantastic. I just, thought that what a wonderful group of people to work with. And, and now you have this, you know, sorry, I, I hate to be cynical about this, but, you know, our podcast talks a, a bit about, you know, the award seasons and stuff like that. So I'm I'm curious about this Emmy nomination, which is your second. I believe you, you got a nomination for Mad Men. Do you have, I mean, do you have like a fun story about when you found out or was it just kind of a, another morning and you got a phone call or, or how, did, how did the Emmy nomination news get to you? Um, I was asleep and... I have sat there and listened before and, and, you know, not heard my name and, and, you know, you deal with those feelings, not that you ever expect it, but, you know, I've sat there and listened and I thought, oh, you know what, I'm just going to go to sleep. I'm not going to be too, too connected to whatever this result may or may not be. Um, I'm just, you know, I stayed up watching TV really late and, and then I fell asleep and then my phone rang and it was a pleasant surprise. You know, it really was something that was so exciting, but my favorite thing about it was, the calls that I received, the people on the other end were so happy for me. The genuine joy that, that people had in, in sharing what was happening was just such a nice spark of joy. And it, it, really, it, really, made me, it, it really made me feel happy. It was, it was really nice to feel some joy. Which can be hard to come by right now, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, as much as, you know, Dead to Me Season 2 arrived for the viewers during quarantine, you know, you got you. I'm I'm glad that the people involved in the show got their own moment to uh, to have a little joy right now. We are asking a lot of people that we speak to for the podcast right now, like how you're spending quarantine in terms of like viewing habits. Like you mentioned you were watching TV late. Like what what has your sort of stay at home viewing life been like? Well, we stay home a lot. I have an eight-year-old, so, you know, that's, I think I'm gearing up for homeschooling again any, any moment now, um, but <laughs> which that takes a lot of work. Yeah, I can't um, imagine. And, uh, as, you know, it's good. I, I, sh- I should be so lucky to be able to be here and, and to be able to do that, you know, but uh, we stay home a lot. My, you know, now we watch family shows, which that sort of wasn't on my agenda before i mean like she would watch a little bit of tv but now we sort of sit around and and watch um game shows and you know some of those competition shows and that's that's fun it's it's nice to be able to watch something and sort of escape for a while as a family and and sort of revel in other people's joy as they i don't know make their dreams come true on certain things or win however much money on wheel of fortune or you know price is right we watched price is right this morning and it's funny you mentioned game shows because uh, my boyfriend and I have have also been watching a lot of like primetime game shows that we didn't really watch before. There's a lot and of them now. There's, there's a lot, yeah, and they're stressful, the, but uh, stressful for me. But they're also like they're, they're, there's usually a really good payoff. So <laughs> at least at the end of the hour, you feel like something happy happened. Yes. Yeah. Well, speaking of happy things, congrats again uh, on the Emmy nomination. You know, it's really fun to watch this show. 
not only find an audience, but to find a, a kind of ever broadening one. So um, hopefully this will, I mean, I, I, I know I, I'm, you know, season three spoilers or whatever, even if there aren't any to give are, are verboten, but um, I will be very curious to see where these two head after a really gnarly car accident. I know, I know. <laughs> Me too. Though. And also, yeah. what is James Marsden going to be up to? He's in trouble yeah. this time, right? Right. I actually, I don't, I, inter- I don't know anything. After uh, watching season two of Dead to Me, I, I said, you know, I was like, I, I want to figure out what James Marsden's all about. And so I actually like, set up an interview with him. And uh, and he was saying, yeah, you know, there could be a third brother. We, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> what a sister. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, why not? Like, yeah. we've got all kinds of options. Um, yeah, no, he's great. Well, congrats again. And good luck uh, with whatever form the Emmy ceremony takes. I don't, yeah, I don't know what it, that's going to be. I but, don't know um, what that is going to be either. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, it's an honor to be nominated, I'm sure. And um, thank you for taking the time to talk. I really appreciate yes, it. Uh, nominated with my friend, too. Yeah. That is, I mean, yeah. unreal. I'm so, I'm so happy for us. And yeah, for, well, oh my God, the women in the category are amazing. Oh, it's stacked. It's crazy. That's <laughs> I mean, just like, I just... I love yeah. every single one of their performances. Well, we had um, Laura Linney on the podcast a couple, I don't know, a month or two ago, and she also was dealing with homeschooling. So you're in good company. It's the talk of the, of the parents. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. Um, all right, Linda, I'll let you go. But thank you again so much for taking the time. And, uh, you know, can't wait to see uh, to what, what you do next, whatever that may be. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Stay safe and well. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. The Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Chris, uh, now we're going to listen to your conversation with Yaya Abdul-Mateen, who uh, you were on Zoom with from Berlin, uh, which is, uh, you know, fascinating and exotic, the idea that anyone could be in another country somewhere. Um, What did you guys talk about? Yeah, he was in Berlin. He's preparing to shoot The Matrix 4. Uh, He couldn't really talk about that very much, but he's there. Uh, We talked about his performance and like kind of how he created Dr. Manhattan and Cal, who is the human like mask of Dr. Manhattan. He's a really interesting guy. He's obviously... You know, I think audiences who hadn't seen him before Watchmen maybe saw him in Aquaman. He played the villain in that. And uh, he was in Us for about two or three scenes. But he's got, you know, Watchmen. And then he's going to be in the Aaron Sorkin movie that's coming to Netflix in October. uh, The Trial of Chicago 7 and Matrix 4 and a bunch of other stuff. He's a great, I think he's a great actor. He really is thoughtful about his performance. We talked about that and also about the general show. Like we had talked about earlier, how kind of people have been revisiting Watchmen uh, during this time of, you know, cultural upheaval and, you know, social reckoning. Uh, he had some interesting thoughts about that, too. And I found, like, a lot of the stuff he said about how the show portrays, 
you know, a very positive image of black love, like really interesting and thoughtful. So I think if you've watched Watchmen, uh, he actually does have some really insightful things to say about it that I had not previously thought of. All right. I'm excited to listen to your interview. I'm Christopher Rosen back here on Little Gold Men. I'm joined by Yaya Abdul-Mateen, an Emmy nominee for Watchmen. Hello, Yaya. Thank you for uh, joining us here. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here, man. Yeah, no problem. We're going to talk about spoilers for Watchmen. So if people are listening who have not uh, watched, please go and watch. uh, Because it's impossible really to talk about your performance and I think the Emmy nomination without talking about those spoilers. So just an FYI. But yeah, I guess I wanted to start... Uh, talking about before, you know, when you were cast, I know it was, you did not know that you were going to be playing Dr. Manhattan, right? You were going to be playing Cal. That was kind of how it was presented to you, right, at the time. And then you kind of found out later that you were going to become Dr. Manhattan. I, I wanted to ask you about that because I found that really fascinating. I think there's a lot of examples of like, you know, comic book movies and movies in general and shows in Hollywood where like an actor of the caliber of like Regina, let's say, would be like the dutiful wife or, you know, however what. And like kind of like that's almost like a cliche at this point. I was fascinated initially by Watchmen by like that dynamic being flipped and having like, you know, her kind of being the hero and then you playing like a very loyal spouse. And I guess I just wanted to talk to you a little about doing that version of Cal in the beginning, especially like embodying that kind of masculinity and like stuff that I think is pretty common for people in relationships, but not necessarily shown in Hollywood production. So I guess like, can you just start there talking about like Cal, I guess? Yeah, of course. You know, being a husband, you know, this was a role where I was actually attracted by the fact that he wasn't a guy that was, that was challenged. He didn't feel like his masculinity was, was challenged. He was a supportive husband. He was smart. He was very grounded and, uh, uh, comfortable in his own skin. I think he liked to stay at home and to cook and to play with the kids. And he probably had a hand in designing the home and he probably does the upkeep around the home. He probably does the landscaping. Um, he has more time to read um, and, and to really protect the fort. You know, and I, I, I saw a character who loved this lifestyle that gave him the opportunity to be at home and to protect the house and to trust his trust his wife enough to go out to be this kick-ass police or hero that she was um, in her second life, and then to come home and to give all of those, you know, to be to be uh, um, a safe place for her to come back and to to shed off those problems, you know. Um, and so I saw Cal as like really the ultimate protector, which meant that he had to be patient and very understanding and um, and humble and, and comfortable in who he was. And it was very important to me that that I portrayed it in a way that allowed us to show that type of strong figure on television and uh, to show so a strong black husband, a strong <laughs> black household where those traditional roles were, uh, were turned around without any issue, you know, without, without mm-hmm. that being a main point of contention within the marriage. Yeah. I mean, I think that was, it's really fascinating. I like, that was one of the things like I really enjoyed about the show initially. And then obviously you know, when we get to episode eight, you know, or ep- end of episode seven, I guess, you you become Dr. Manhattan, which is really dope and awesome. <laughs> and that whole episode is you kind of like are, I, I think I read it's like a 16 page monologue that you have or like a 16 page scene, excuse me, with you and Regina at the bar. And I just, again, I rewatched it before we spoke and I was just like, it's, it blows me away that like there's no, your face is just not in it, right? Like it's all your voice and it's just a really awesome sequence. I, I 
can you talk a little about the voice you did for Dr. Manhattan? Because the other thing that I noticed again on rewatch, which is just like how you do have a different vocal inflection for Cal and it's so different and it almost sounds like two different people, even though I know it's both you. So I guess talk a little about like building that character off of Cal, making the voice different enough and like, you know, kind of like finding that. I'll answer that question by going back to Cal. You know, one of the things yeah. that, I did, that, that I did once I did finally, you know, get the information that I was going to be, be uh, playing Dr. Manhattan is that I left that information alone and I didn't give myself the, I let myself as an actor stay in the sort of the, the area of uh, blissful ignorance, you know, and I said, I'll hand, I'll cross that Dr. Manhattan bridge when I get to it because Cal does not know that he is Dr. Manhattan. And so I wanted to make sure that I was as fully invested in Cal as possible um, so that when I made the transition, that there will be a real differentiation between those between those two characters. I didn't want to muddy them, muddy them up at all. In the exploration of creating this Dr. Manhattan character, I wanted him to be different. And uh, I, and just, you know, the first thing that I went to, you know, to or one of the first things was his vocal qualities. How is he different? And so I started to do a little bit of research and it was fun. It was it was a lot of fun because I got to I started to, to do research on some of the, uh, you know, some people who I thought were hyper intelligent. Also, some uh, older white males who I thought were hyper intelligent. Uh, um, and I landed on a, a couple. I landed on. Damon, well, I landed on, on a lot, but the ones that kept coming up with were uh, Damon Lindelof, <laughs> uh, Steve Jobs, and uh, the dean of the drama school at, at Yale. His name is James Bundy. Three um, hyper, you know, people who I, who I consider to be hyper intelligent. And um, they all had, had something in common where their speech patterns were, um, at times, their consonants were very sharp. Uh, and some of them had a vocal quality that was just high pitched. And so I started playing with this very high pitched voice. And then I would try on Damon's and Damon has sort of, Damon has this raspy quality to his voice uh, uh, sometimes. And Steve Jobs, I won't go into my Steve Jobs because my voice isn't, isn't warm. So I won't wreck my, wreck my vocal cords right now. But it was just play. You know, I just started to go and play and just to blend different things and try it on. And I landed in this in a space that was uh, that just allowed me to have allowed me to have freedom and fun and really differentiated, you know, from the place that Cal um, that Cal lived. And, and, and I sort of just took my my exploration there. What did uh, what did Damon think when you were doing uh, basically when you were trying to do his voice back to him, I guess? <laughs> I, I don't know if Damon may have found out behind my back, but I'm so glad that I never had to perform that for him in my exploration. <laughs> If you ever get a chance to uh, to to rap one on one with uh with uh Nikki, then she may tell you because I send her voice samples and uh I don't know, maybe she sent Damon some and, and maybe they had some drinks and, and some really good laughs on my expense. Maybe they didn't, but um <laughs> I was going for it, man. I didn't have time to think about what anybody else thought. You know, I was trying to do my job. Can you talk a little about too working with Regina in that scene because it's so it's great and like I just again like I think it's so good and like I guess like how, how much did you have any rehearsal time I know TV is probably like tougher than doing films maybe you don't have as much time like can you talk a little about that and like doing that big sequence because it really does make up like the backbone of the episode. Yeah, yeah, no, no I didn't have any any rehearsal time with uh, Regina. Okay. I worked with uh, I worked with Nikki a bit, we, you know, because you know Regina was always on set, and I was just really working on the character, working on building the character. And then, you know, I trusted Regina. She's a, she's a pro, I, you know, from the audition. I thought we had a really, really good, good chemistry. So I knew that whatever, whatever I brought to the table, 
that she would be game. You know, that's really how, how I describe her is just she's fun and she's just game as an actor. Um, really excellent scene partner. But that was an exercise in trust, you know, trust and patience. I, you know, I apologized one or two times to, to, to Regina because one, I was wearing a mask. And then two, I was working with the character who is not extremely um, expressive. And so, you know, a couple of times in between the takes, I would say, hey, like, you know, I would say, hey, do you have anything that you need? Let me know. Or, or, or do you have everything that you need? Let me know if you need anything. Or I'm so sorry that I can't give you, I can't give you more, you know. And that, that was me realizing how frustrating it must be to to just deal with a person like this, this Dr. Manhattan character. And as, not, as an actor, when you just need something and, and you know, they're not giving you much emotional padding to bounce back and forth, uh, then that can be very frustrating. But, I, you know, I talked to her in between the takes and, and she didn't feel any of the concerns that I was, you know, that I was bringing up. And uh, we kind of laughed about it and, and everything. But that was really just an exercise in talking and listening and, and trust. And then for myself, I was waiting to get into that. I, you know, I waited so long for, you know, for the big episode and I get there and then there's 16 pages and my, my face isn't even on the on the screen. You know? So I just had to laugh at the irony of that and, you know, just got to be patient through it all. But then also to find opportunities to build and to define the character. So that meant that because my face wasn't going to be on the screen, then my voice had to, then my voice work had to be uh, better. It pushed my voice work to be better. Um, and so I think overall that, that working at Bart scene really helped me to, um, to just tighten up as an actor um, and gave me a lot of uh, information about how the character moved out, out in the world that uh, eventually informed the rest of that episode. Yeah, you mentioned, I mean, like, to give you a lot of, uh, to give you credit here, I think, like, the other thing about your performance that I love is the, the physicality of it, not, like, your physique, per se, but, like, the actual, the way you move as Dr. Manhattan, I found just really uh, fascinating, and it kind of, like, one of the things I noticed about you as a performer, just to go on a, a slight brief tangent, but, I mean, like, when I saw you in Us, uh, which is a great movie, I think super underrated, honestly, uh, there's a scene at the end towards Us when your, like, tethered version is replaying a scene at the carnival, and you have this, like, walk, and, I mean, it's so uncanny and, like, dreamlike, nightmarish, that I still think about it, and so I think your performance is, like, your physicality is so great, and I was really struck by that watching Watchmen, because I think that the way you hold yourself as Dr. Manhattan is so alien and like in a really good way so i guess like you know beyond the voice talk a little about like that too like the way you kind of like thought of him physically embodying space because i just think you're like really good at that and like it really comes across in the in the performance uh, i appreciate that and, and uh, i think embodying space that's that's an excellent way to describe how how i was working you know uh i try to embody him with a with a 360 degree awareness you know uh, as a as a character who is we can call him a god, you know. Uh, he is. Um, he he has all of the information. You know, he's he has a constant inflow of information of everything that's going around him, and he doesn't need to use very much energy. The world revolves around around him, and so he doesn't need to use much energy to make things happen. People are going to come to him. They're going to gravitate to him, and he is. He's, he has an arrogance to, 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 to himself uh, that places him at the center of the universe. And so he can walk into a place and sit and not move. Eventually, everything in that, everything and everyone in that space will gravitate towards him. He can sit down and he can make a, he can make a joke and he can move, move his finger slightly two inches to the left and 
a beautiful song will start to play on the jukebox. So he doesn't, he doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of effort. And he's not a guy who is just, who is a uh, gratuitous in his movement or speech or emotion. You know, the, you, you won't see a lot of uh, uh, wasted energy from, from a person who <laughs> couldn't be, who at one point couldn't be bothered with humans at all. So he decided to leave to go to another planet. You know, uh, so he he would not be the person who's going to waste energy on certainly people and circumstances, you know. And so I and, and so, you know, it, it was a lot about status and authority and stillness. But also so going back to that idea, because it's, it's an acting I find that it's all a game, you know, and that game was was uh, a lot. A lot of times the, the, the subject was frustration, you know, and, and frustrating this other person across from me. Uh, to the point where they just where he doesn't move and so you want to get up and you want to shake him by the collar you know what i mean um so i i, I try to imbue a lot of that in, into his physicality and and uh and it was fun it was fun it also helped me to differentiate him from from cow and from yeah. uh from blue cow and from the other uh characters of uh document uh, other forms of document hadn't that we you know got to explore in that episode yeah you mentioned that i thought that was fascinating too like kind of like you're playing so many, t- it's like a bunch, I, I guess, like probably at least three or four like different versions of the, uh, the Cal and then like all the different Dr. Manhattans. It's how it was like, I think Nicole Castle directed that, right? That episode. Um, how did you guys talk about like the nuances of the slight differences between the different versions? Well, I'll tell you this. First off, I got the episode uh, eight while we were filming episode seven and I started to turn the pages and I see all of these different versions of Cal. And when I say, oh, I think they're bringing in more actors to play. And the thought was in the back of my head for a very long time before I finally got up, found up the courage to just kind of ask Nikki. I said, hey, am I, I, I forget the exact question, but what I was trying to figure out was, am I getting fired? <laughs> you know what I mean? It was confusing to me on paper at first. I had no idea how to follow. And I said, so which one is Cal? Which one is Dr. Manhattan? But as the story unfolded, we gave them each little names. We had uh, Cal Abar, which is which was the character from one through seven. We had John Osterman, who was the guy in the bar and the guy in the morgue. We had Cal Hatton, who was um, who was Calvin. Once Doctor Manhattan went inside of his body, this was before he had the before he had the ring. And then you had uh, Blue Cal, which was cow that existed in episode at the end of episode eight and in episode nine so there were so many dr manhattans walking around and uh man i almost just confused myself and tired myself <laughs> just now just going through uh but it was fun it was all actually you know an acting exercise and it you know it definitely paid off uh you know the taking that journey from 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 calvin in the beginning to this very rounded and exciting uh, mysterious, magical character, you know, that I got to play with uh, toward the end. Yeah. I know a big point of the show is, like, obviously it was really critically acclaimed last year, and I think, like, a big point, big talking point that sprouted up recently, I would say, has been, like, how kind of quote-unquote prescient it has been. But I guess, like, especially about, like, with how, you know, the themes of social justice and racist policing and all these things. But I guess I was thinking, again, rewatching it, I feel like this show is not necessarily prescient, but just, like, underlining a lot of the issues that have been discussed and maybe not heard for decades. So for you, do you feel like it was predictive or is it more like 
seemingly white audiences are more paying attention now to it, you know, like the issues that it's broaching than they had been previously. I think it's a little bit of, I think it's a little bit of it all, you know, um, okay. you know, I think, I think last year the show was right on time at the same, and at the same time it was 30, 40, 50 years, 50 years late. And it was this year, you know, with the events of the world now shows that the show was ahead of its time, you know, and, and, you know, I think, if I were to go back to watch it right now, I, I would I would find new themes that you know that would land uh, you know that would land on me in a different way than it did a year ago, and I'm and I'm sure that uh, if I project forward into the future, that there would be themes of the show that would you know that would still be relevant. It's one of the things that I'm most proud about the show is that it changes with the times and it grows with every audience, and you know people are going to take away different things from from this show, and a lot of what you takeaway from it is what you bring to it but at the same time i think it's one of those shows that will give you something new a new uh um you know new and challenging ways to think about the pressing issues of the world you know last year i looked at the show as sort of a a warning to what this country could turn into if we did let a lot of the ills that plague our country get out of hand and that has definitely happened since then and we look at the state of the world right now i think there was not sure if it was Portland. I think it was some somewhere in Oregon, where you had the the police wearing the yellow masks and without the mm-hmm. name tags, and 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 it looked like the, something directly out of out of Watchmen. So a lot of it has has come to fruition, and um, it's troubling, but it's also um, there's a lot of themes in the show that are also inspiring inspiring as well. I'm 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 really happy to be a part of a show that has the courage to talk about uh, the themes that we you know that that we cover as well, while also telling a love story and telling a love telling a love story where God comes down from his place and allows a black woman to choose to, to choose a black man, you know, uh, uh, to be the vessel to tell this story about black love. So it's also while it's also a story about racism and, uh, you know, that's and, and uh, trauma that's passed down from generation to generation. Uh, it's also a story about overcoming. It's also a story about, I think, a godly love and a godly uh, black love, you know, as well. So, um, you know, there's so many themes. It's it's such a layered, layered show. And I was just really blessed to play the role that I, you know, that I was asked to play. You know, you've got uh, Trial of Chicago 7 coming out later this year. You're working on Matrix 4, obviously. You, But one of the things I wanted to bring it back to Watchmen just briefly was like, you're working with like not just like Regina King, obviously an Oscar winner, amazing. I loved your scene with Luke Gossett. I guess can you talk a little about like and he was nominated too, which is super nice. You know, as a new-ish, younger actor certainly um, compared to Luke Gossett. Can you talk a little about like working with him on the on the show a little? I remember just kind of being shy, you know, to go in and work with Luke. You know, and I'm kind of tiptoeing. I want to know what he's like. First off, he's so charismatic. So, so, so charismatic. And when he was on set, he had the most energy on set. He has such a large kinosphere. And energetically, he takes up so much space. He speaks to everyone. He really takes the space, which is something that I don't have a problem doing as an actor. But I, I really admired I really admired watching him work in that way and just owning his craft. I watched Lute be so incredibly curious about about his mission and about his objective as an actor. So curious about the scene and he is having fun. So, you know, that, that was something that I took to heart because as a young actor, sometimes we make acting so serious and 
sometimes it's necessary. It's necessary to take the work serious, but sometimes we take ourselves uh, ourselves serious, and then that that eliminates the the fun in the work. You know, it keeps us from mining all of the good stuff and the vulnerability that it takes to mess up and to really explore. So I watched Lou just be playful and continue, you know, in his age to have a spirit of exploration and uh, and uh, curiosity and appreciation for the craft. And uh, that was that that was something that, you know, that I took from I took from Lou. And it was a great reminder that, hey, you, you know, to myself that, look, I'm doing all right. I'm doing great, actually. But don't start to take myself or to take it too serious. Continue to be a student, you know, continue to be a student and don't walk through this journey considering myself an expert. You know, I did that. I was four years out of school being opposite Lou Gossett, who was uh, into his into his 80s, you know, and he's still asking the same questions about how do I do this and being curious and, and having fun and answering those questions. Uh, so it was such a tremendous honor to work to to, to work with Lou and to um you know and, and to you know to consider him a scene partner. Um, and listen, and I know you're you're and I I don't expect you to be able to say anything about uh, Matrix Four, but I guess uh, you guys have been filming, right? So how's that been going overall amid the coronavirus pandemic and stuff? Uh, well, I'm in I'm, I'm currently in Berlin, and we're you know I'm I'm actually prepping to get prepping to get the phone call. Okay, you know, just kind of waiting on you know waiting on the phone call, but I'm trying to stay in shape and try to stay ready and. Just really, just safety. Safety is is really is really the main you know the main concern right now. So I'm I'm out here and playing the game and getting a lot of sunlight. And when the phone rings, then you know I'll show up and I'll you know hopefully go up, go out and you know do my nice. thing. But that's that's about as much as I could. Totally, totally understand. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it, and I'll let you go now because I definitely want you to get that sunlight before it goes away. So thank you so much. It's great chatting, and like I said, the performance is awesome. So good luck at the Emmys and stuff. I think you uh, are a deserved nominee, and I hope you you, are, you you know things work out well. So congrats. Thank you so much. That does it for this week's episode. Uh, before we go, we have a real time correction to issue. Uh, Mike, would you like to uh, to explain what we learned about the Hogan family? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny when things happen when you're a little kid. Like, I guess I was 11 years old when that show was on the air. But Justin Bateman's character was named David Hogan. Mm. His father, played by Josh Taylor, was Michael Hogan. So I stand corrected. Apologies to Josh Taylor. We'll have you. We'll have you guys Sorry, talk to Josh. each other uh, and yeah. have the singularity. That'll occurred. be just like Tenet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find Richard's review of Unhinged and all of our continued Emmys coverage. Um, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Mike. Michael David <laughs> underscore Taylor. <laughs> Jason Bateman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Chris. At Chris J. Rosen. And Richard. At Apologies CBC. Yeah. <laughs> at Band in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> this week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best preview of what Vanity Fair will cover when we run out of new movies and television goes to Mike Hogan. Weird, you know, rabbit holes of like gross out comedies from the 2010s. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. 
Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From P.